Welcome to Moving with the Pen. I'm Joe Williams. In this podcast, I'm tracing the human gesture of writing from first thoughts to the final page. Listen on for interviews and interdisciplinary side quests, experiment and reflection, strangeness and laughter. Whether you want to breathe new life into your art or you're just trying to get to sleep. Make yourself at home. growing tree of meaning forms this podcast. If you want to be a pen friend of the podcast, I'll write to you and share what I learned from tending it. The links that emerge between the conversations, the insights that blossom after them. I'll let you know about opportunities to write together as they come up, whether that be free workshops or long course deep dives. Go to movingwiththepen.com slash penfriend and enter your email to make it happen. Melissa Morris is a professional pianist, teacher, and an interdisciplinary artist. In recent years, she has come out as a songwriter, and I wanted to talk to her about the path she's walked to release her first single, Half Light. As one can do with a dear friend, we sat in her living room and talked for two and a half hours. What she told me about the uneasy relationship between playing classical music and improvisation, her search for the authority to write, and her actual process of writing words for music was eye-opening. The openness and the detail with which she describes it all makes this episode very easy to learn from and put into practice. I hope you enjoy it. I know we did. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So, I've been lucky enough to have you as a close friend for 24 years now. (laughs) And we met through music back when you headhunted me for your folk band. <laughs> it's um, quite easy to get headhunted as a guitarist in secondary school. You have to just be maybe slightly less of an Egypt than all the other Egypts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I hope in this interview we can start to catch something of your journey through a very rigorous and thorough training and life as a classical musician and performer 
through to the release of your first single, Half Light, last year. There is a kind of sensitivity, of touch, and a power of connection that has characterized your performances and your musicality ever since you began to take piano seriously. So I think the first time I really experienced you at full bore was actually a boogie set that you played with our friend Pip on her 18th birthday. And that was one of those experiences where you dance until you're convinced you're going to die. <laughs> you sit down against a tree, convinced that you're actually dying. <laughs> then you get resurrected by the music 20 seconds later to go and <laughs> fling your arms and legs around in the circle. And um, I remember at the climax of that, you took um, a piece by Jules Holland called The Bumble Boogie, where he inserts a bit of the flight of the bumblebee into it. And you took his version, which is already a bit of a virtuoso mashup and um, <laughs> made it a bit harder. <laughs> and a lot of people can throw notes about, you know, even by that age. A lot of people can throw notes about, but the conviction with which you did that entire set and that one particularly was like getting hit by a freight train <laughs> in the best possible way. Um, and then the next time you pop up is later and I'm teaching and You've called me from for a chat from the car on the motorway. And I've said, hey, swing by. It's Friday afternoon. You could give a concert. And you've said, I don't have my music with me. And I've said, that doesn't matter. Play what you've got by memory. What have you got by memory? <laughs> and you said, well... I've been practicing the Concord Sonatas by Ives. And so you come, we do the boogie woogie thing. Mama bought a chicken, thought it was a duck. <laughs> the children are predictably delighted. <laughs> and then what was what was the movement you played it's the third movement called the alcots yeah can you say a bit about how that third movement works how how's it constructed what's it like ah okay the thing that i love about it is out of this extremely complex and vast chaotic and absolutely crazy sonata you arrive at the third third movement and it's suddenly stripped back and it's really hymnal 
and it starts with just three repeated chords, if I recall it's B flat major, and an inversion that gives D at the top. It's a long time since I've played it. But what I love is, is that sudden simplicity and the sparsity of sound. I think it's suddenly really vulnerable and honest. So that's how it starts. It's very sweet. And it's suddenly quite humble and pure. And then Ives has his little tricks and he starts to add extra notes. And these are just like little sparkles at the top. So te physically, technically, you have to bring the left hand over and start to add these odd notes. And then they start to introduce this, these extraordinary sort of elements that it's not all going to be how you would expect. <laughs> and then, and it just becomes increasingly complex and free and sort of spirals as the piece goes on. Um, and that's really enjoyable physically as well, because there are moments of contrary motion and you'll sort of start in a complex position in the center of the keyboard and you start to spiral outwards with the hands. So you start to explore the full range of the sound and color and yeah, it just kind of spirals. And then you have these moments reminiscent of Beethoven's fifth. So you suddenly come back into this chaos from chaos and cacophony of sound into the diatonic impressions, because you've still got a lot happening and a lot of resonance, a lot of pedal impressions of these memories that come back with like full power in the middle of all the craziness. Um, and it, maybe I won't say what the ending is so that in case someone would want to hear it, you kind of... I, I, think, I think we can risk a spoiler on a fairly unusual piece of music. <laughs> and I, I'd like to add to your narrative of the ending because I saw this as an observer. Mm, okay. It was quite a particular experience. So go ahead. Yeah, I think what I love is the fact that it has started so simply. It spirals as if it would be out of control. You've got this huge crashing experiences that are memories from the past. And then it sort of draws itself to this peaceful conclusion and a very gentle cadence and harmony again at the end. And it takes the drawing to a close of the piece can take whatever time it needs to take in that space. So you really need to listen to the sounds and be part of that experience to, to shape the ending. And then indeed the last note of the entire piece, it's not even that long. I don't recall, it might be six minutes or something, but you feel like you've gone through a lot in a short space of time. And then to get to the end and after the cacophony of sound, place 
very simply these notes in harmony with one another. I think the resolution is one of peace. Hmm. I think inviting you to play that piece was perhaps a little bit of subversion within the context. Um, so that was a Steiner school for children with special needs. And one of the things that I was battling, or I wasn't battling it, I think I was warmly disregarding it, really, and enjoying the experiences that flowed from that, was there were a lot of quite prescriptive ideas about what different kinds of musical language mean, and how they should be used to educate and how they should be used for therapy mm. and so inviting this piece of music in that uses the whole piano mm. <laughs> um perhaps not quite all 12 notes at once, but in the thick bit towards the end, we're getting there mm. in those kind of atonal transformations of the, the, the opening motif of mm. Beethoven's fifth. And I had a working hypothesis at that point that those particular young people were very hungry for the real thing. Mm -hmm. mm. In whatever way you could find them, a bit of the real thing. Mm. Something unedited mm. and authentically of the world beyond other people's ideas of their disability. And the silence in the hall as the piece built told me something. You know, there's a silence when people are really listening, mm. really, really listening. And there was a little side drama going on um, with a lad of about 15 who was a bit unsettled, beginning to make some noises. And people around him may be a little bit anxious that he shouldn't impact on the concert for other people. So he went out and went for a walk with them. And one of the fictions that used to follow that lad around, one of the um, 
you know, most lives are accompanied by perceptions that won't go away on behalf of other people. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the stories people would find themselves telling about him um, was that he was very fragile physically and emotionally. As he came back from his walk, he was on the steps behind you. So we're in a fairly well fitted out wooden hall with a grand piano at the bottom of the steps. We've got the top up and you've got to the point where your performance instruction, you're playing pretty low down in the range. We're well beyond any given key. Your performance instruction is basically whatever this instrument has got, ring it out of it. <laughs> you know, by this time you were kind of postmasters level, you know, performance student getting on into performing and teaching. So uh, you had a pretty le pretty heavy left hand. <laughs> <laughs> and I can just see him heading towards you. <laughs> this kind of moment of supreme auditory chaos and it's just like a wave takes him as he's coming down the stairs behind you and his body just arches around this massive sound that's pouring out of the piano and this look of fierce joy comes on his face <laughs> and this attempt to protect him had backfired. And then the next time I really see you perform is back in Birmingham, only a few years ago with your producer buddies, now bandmates, mm -hmm. EIF, Earth is flat, um, very much being yourself as a classical pianist and a singer with two, I mean, how are we going to describe those boys? I've, I've the utmost admiration for what they do. Have you got words for what they do? Um, Maybe we need to call them up and ask <laughs> yeah, them. I think we need to. Yes. I mean, yeah, music producers. Um, writers. I don't so know. we're talking beats and samples. Yes. We're talking electronic music, but not four to the floor EDM. What I love about their stuff is they have an extraordinarily um, fluid and sensitive output for um, two guys with drum machines, Ableton laptops. So the experience of dancing to them is more like the experience of dancing to a band that can really groove mm. because of the way they handle rhythm mm. and how rhythmically flexible they are. Mm. Um, yeah. They're brilliant guys. Mm. I see them as musicians. They're using technology, but to me, 
I experience their sound as I would that of like fellow classical musicians. There's something in their sound that I really have connected with, even if I'm not familiar with that style of electronic music. I felt like there's so much depth to the sound and their experience and their integrity when they create the sound. It's so much more than they're just being a beat. I feel like the amount that they're listening and interacting with the space is like you're improvising. And they've been improvising together for many years now, haven't they? They were, they were bandmates. Yes, since they've been teenagers. I yes, think. so they've yeah. known each other for a similar length of time mm. as you and I have known each mm. other. They've been bandmates. They have learned their musicality together. Yes. And I think it's that that you're hearing yes. fundamentally. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. But I've left a lot of gaps there because in the middle of all this or kind of the greater part of all this, is you've been busy being classical pianist all this time. And that part of your musical life has kind of come to me as a bit like echoes from a battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> I've sort of, I've heard a lot about the back end of that. You know, I was sort of, it, it, it seems like, it seems like sort of, um, gunfire from a distant trench <laughs> trench warfare in progress <laughs> you know yeah. how'd you go on the phone saying yes i w we, we, we went over the top again today <laughs> um but i think it's important to yeah say say a bit more about that and in the context of this interview I would love to know what drew you to devote yourself to that first. So as I understand it, there's a point, perhaps around the time that you're in school, perhaps onwards to doing your A-levels, where it could even have gone either way to the extent that you could have been a visual artist instead. Mm. And I'm really interested in what made you throw all your energy into classical performance for so many years. Hmm. What made you go over the top so many times? <laughs> I'm not sure if I ever wanted to go over the top. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems to be part and parcel of of doing that and being that. But first and foremost, I just have always loved playing the piano. I just love playing the piano. And I don't mind where that is or what it is what kind of music, really, what genre. Or to Why not whom... jazz, for instance? I love jazz. I would have, I would have been a jazz pianist if I could. 
I had wanted to be a jazz pianist. There's something about certain eras of jazz that doesn't completely connect with me and move me. What was it that did move you? Just, there will just be combinations of sound. And I guess that can fall into genres, but that wasn't something that I was aware of as a young person. Are there any players that particularly, you know, have caught you? So, I mean, for instance, a few years back, you were on a Brad Meldow bender. Yes. I've caught the Brad Meldow bug myself recently. Mm. Mm. Keith Jarrett, Keith Tippett. Yeah. When I was really young, I... I wouldn't have known pianists, so I got some vinyls from Jumble Cells. Sure. <laughs> and an old Marconi from the Jumble Cell, and I played some records, and I guess maybe I heard things on television. Mm-hmm. I think though, I think I loved the music to Brideshead Revisited. That takes me back <laughs> to being a child. I think I remember enjoying the sounds of things that I heard on the television, but I wouldn't have known what that was. I think I did connect with classical repertoire. I think I enjoyed very much the sound of classical pieces. I think as a child that there were like Sunday evening um, period dramas on the television and somewhere in the background someone would be playing a forte piano. Piano forte. Which way round is it now? <laughs> so. I think it's a forte piano when it's the little one, isn't it? Yeah. Or, or some, somewhere in the background, you'd hear the sweetest of sounds, and it's like a children's musical box. And I have always enjoyed the classical repertoire. I have enjoyed that clarity of sound, how delicate it is, the delicate and the nuance. The delicacy of the nuance of that sound, the diatonic harmony, the the cadences, the resolution, the balance, the symmetry of the phrases. Like that, I think, must have connected with me before I knew what that was. Because mm. I think I used to, apparently I used to hum and be like humming little classical tunes all the time. Mm. Um, and I think that's what I must have enjoyed playing. One of the first pieces, Bach, would have been in the grade one, little minuet in G. I loved that. I absolutely loved playing that so much. So I don't know why that connected with me. I think it's it's purity. Mm-hmm. It's uniform sound. It's, del- it's delicate sound. It's, it, it's exactness of sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I think connected as a, as a child before I knew what music was. And then I think it was um, my dad listening to the Rolling Stones and wondering what the legacy was there. And then hearing, I think at age 14 or 13, hearing at my friend's house their CD, or perhaps even tape, I can't remember, of Jules Holland's live album and then his opening piece bumble boogie 
And then I was just blown away because I, I heard familiar things in a totally different context, which made me recognize elements of maybe some of the rock and roll tracks that I'd heard in the house on the, on the records. And so that, yeah, threw me into the world of Boogie Woogie. That really connected with me then, because then that was entirely different and I'd been enjoying playing all this serious classical music, Beethoven sonatas, and enjoying the drama and the precision. You do enjoy, enjoy the drama, don't you? <laughs> yeah. You do definitely <laughs> enjoy the drama. Yeah, but it was... It, it was I think it was cool because it sort of mixed it up a bit with when I heard similar things, the diminished chords, you know, arpeggios and this amazing bass line riff from this boogie woogie piece. I hadn't recognized it was Flight of the Bumblebee. I didn't even know the piece Flight of the Bumblebee. I didn't know musical repertoire. We didn't listen to classical radio or anything. I only knew what my teacher put in front of me to play. We didn't even listen to to the radio. We listened to the tapes that my parents were listening to at the time. So so to, I must have heard those elements in this Bumble Boogie. So there's classical elements with a whole lot of fun. <laughs> and I think then that hit me that our oh, music could be really fun like that as well, not just this derm and drang of the, of the drama, but that you could have fun with it, with this Boogie Woogie bass line that makes you just want to dance so that's what got me onto the boogie woogie and then ben waters of course and yeah then i just started to learn as much boogie woogie as i could by ear and it was great because it was this big contrast to how serious the classical music world could be Mm. so a question in two parts what drew you onwards from you know, what you might call sort of core classical and early romantic repertoire into this interest in early 20th century music? That was a distinct thing at a certain point, wasn't it? Hmm. With Ives. Yeah. Who else were you? Who else were you playing at the time? Copeland. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think actually it was um, cause at the same time as then. So there's the classical, then there was the boogie woogie at 14. I was already playing in a folk band. Mm-hmm. So then I guess there were a few genres together. I started to learn more about folk music, Scottish music, playing in the Bridgewater Folk Dance Band. So I, I already enjoyed this diver- more of a diverse experience of music. Then I particularly loved playing Beethoven, I think for the drama, and was exploring Chopin. And then my teacher, Mark Tanner, said, if we're choosing diploma repertoire, age 17, how about we play this Schoenberg, the six little piano pieces? And I'd never heard of anything like this. I don't even know if I heard them before I was looking at the page of music to play them. Hadn't a clue what was going on on the page. Never seen anything like it. And week after week, Mark said, how's the Schoenberg coming along? And I would mumble something about 
being a bit busy and oh, didn't quite get around to it or oh, haven't quite managed to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, well, we'll play the Rachmaninoff then. Okay, next week. How's the Schoenberg coming along? Uh, um, didn't quite. Uh, okay, okay, we'll play the Chopin week after week after week. And finally, he said, he must have realized, he was like, okay, sit down, we'll learn one bar. Bearing in mind, one piece was about six bars. <laughs> so, so he sat me down. He said, we'll count through one bar. And we figured out what, how many demi-semiquavers there were and what on earth rest that was. I'd never seen it before. I hadn't seen anything like this kind of notation. And like I said, I probably hadn't even heard it before to like develop some confidence and expectation of the sound world. And um, yeah, we learned a bar. And he said, if you can just learn one bar a week, six weeks you'll have one of the pieces there are six of them and that was a an amazing moment for me that i could it was going to be valid to break things down into that that small a part that small a unit and then be able to plan the time frame in which you could achieve something so it wasn't just this abstract scary daunting prospect that you could avoid it was a manageable task. You could break it right down, count the demi-semi-quavers. It was probably a bar of silence anyway. So that bar was going to be easy that week. <laughs> and then the, the next week, I'd tackle the ridiculous jump from one high note to a low note in one hand with another difficult rhythm in the left hand. And then just one bar a week. So he convinced me that that's how I could break my fear of that piece and then indeed at some point it was ready and then I had the Schoenberg six little piano pieces and they stayed with me for life. It was incredible. And what changed for you in learning those pieces because that is quite a big jump in <laughs> yeah. musical language in sound world. I loved the precision I loved the silence and holding unusual sounds in space. I loved what was unexpected. And I loved the nuance. I loved that you could still have such musical intention and deliver with nuance such unusual musical combinations of sounds that it could still be so meaningful even if it would be such an unusual sound world i really loved how precise they were these small units of space in which you experienced sound it was like small it was like six small pictures of very precise and delicate colors yeah and i loved that and i loved that something i feared so much in one moment i don't remember when i just remember being terrified and then the next thing i remember i don't know how much time later they were mine and i loved them and i carried them with me with such conviction yeah and that i could deliver 
It's like pontalist textures sometimes. In the silence, specific sounds that are so delicate and intimate, but in a big space. Yeah, their intimacy, I think, touched me, yeah. So people listening, not familiar with those pieces, might just want, if nothing else, for an index of Melissa's character to do a little side Googling. Because if that's your response, <laughs> when that kind of stuff hits you as a student, we were talking about this refusal to be beaten. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't really want to go there, but Schoenberg, trying to analyse Schoenberg, ended my degree. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. There were a lot of other problems there, but that was, uh, <laughs> that was the thing where I, um, finally penned my resignation letter and went to work for the postal service for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think that experience was quite meaningful to me in many ways because I had someone saying, I, I see you being a classical pianist. You're a classical pianist. I see you loving to play boogie woogie and I, that's valid. That's equally as valid. And also a teacher saying, don't be scared to try something new. And when he saw I was scared, found a way for me to overcome that and sort of took me by the hand into learning something new. And so for me, that was a really relevant moment in my career, as I would be ultimately enjoying teaching, to think that, yeah, a teacher can recognize that in someone and then like takes them through that. He could have been very frustrated with me week after week, but in one moment he just recognized the fear and found a way to overcome that. So that was such a valid experience for me, a relevant experience for me at how, at the role of a teacher and how they can empower you. So I will, I use that in my teaching with students all the time. I say, we'll break it down. We'll do one bar. We'll do one bar together and one bar is enough. You will have learned so much and I'll help you through that. One bar is enough. And that I was 17 when he, when I had that experience. So I think it was one of those moments when that's how empowering a teacher, a teacher's role yes. can be in your yeah. life. Yeah. They yeah. accept you, they see your fears and they help you. Yes. I'm really, really interested in... the relationship between that challenge and the challenge that jazz presented you. You know, you said I would have been a jazz pianist if I had been able. Yeah. 
But what makes that kind of challenge? What at that point in your life? Because I think this is a bit of a story of the beginning of an arc of change, I think we're perhaps documenting here. But at that point in your life, you know, or at that sort of core age of, you know, the beginning through middle through end of kind of full-on music performance study, what made that kind of challenge meetable where jazz seemed more difficult? I don't know. That's a really good question. Hmm. Ah, because Schoenberg was notated. Okay. Because everything was notated. Everything was written down. Yes. No one could judge me as to how creative I had been with the material because I was doing exactly what I was told. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah, I've just realized that. I, If I'm doing exactly what I've been told on the page, I'm doing it right. Wow. Hmm. It's quite a big thing. It's sort of almost a kind of invisibility spell mm. that one can be completely present. as a conduit for this extraordinary material. Well, of course, you can be judged on all aspects of your performance. But I suppose I'm, I'm not puzzled because it, it fits a pattern I meet very often. in many different forms with different people, but this, that, the hardest thing to be, to risk being judged on mm -hmm. is your creativity. Mm. I've just realized, yeah, it's, if I'm playing what's on the page, it's not me. I haven't had to make any choices. And it's, so it's not me. I'm delivering something. I'm delivering a message and an emotion and a journey and a story. And my story, I'll put my story and my experiences into my playing. But I haven't had to make a choice. And no one can judge me on that because my job is to do what's on that page. It's not me. Can you tell me any more about what it's like to imagine being judged for 
how creative or uncreative you've been judged on the musical decisions you've made. How did that seem at that point? I think I wouldn't have done anything that put me on the line like that. I wouldn't have done anything that could be seen as right or wrong. If they were my choices, because in case it wouldn't be good enough. Where do you think that came from? I don't know. I hear the words in my head, know your place. Bloody hell. I don't know where that's from. Even being able to hear the words is very good. I know I didn't say out loud very much. And that's why I chose the music I chose to play. If I was on my own, I, imp I didn't know I was improvising, but if I was on my own, I sat at the piano and made sounds that I enjoyed. And later I learned to recognize that they were minor. It's a minor key. It's modal. It's melancholy. It's reflective. I've got both pedals down the whole time. I can lose myself in that sound scape. And I think that was yet an escape for me because I didn't use my, vo my voice, didn't use my words. So I didn't ever just explore sounds when anyone could hear it. But what I could do is find a book in a jumble cell of Mozart sonatas busk through the book until I found one in the minor key that was poignantly melancholy <laughs> and delicate of sound and so in so much introverted with its narrative and that's what I could play if anyone would hear me or I could busk through the book of Beethoven sonatas that I found until I found the pathetic sonata and crash the opening chords, the minor chords and go for the crescendos and smash my way through these sonatas that just screamed from their gut in the minor keys. And that's what I would play. So it's a way of finding my voice without having to use any words. Was there an appeal later on when you got into Ives and Copeland there because they 
they had a way of doing their modernism, you know, a lot of jazz in Copeland and a lot of wild inventiveness in Ives. Mm. Um, real, real mad inventor of a man. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a sense through them of being able to live that spontaneity Mm. but through scored work yes yeah exactly i think you know me more than i know me (laughs) exactly and also again that comes down to originally mark tanner saying oh you know i like I like that you like boogie-woogie. You like exploring different styles. Um, So have you tried Copeland? So then that's how I started to play Copeland, the four piano blues. And I was like, great, this is a genre. This is a sound. I don't know if it's the word genre, but this is like a sound that I enjoy playing. It's a little bit less uptight. There's a little bit of freedom and it's a bit laid back and it makes me think of, the boogie woogie that I love listening to and the Albert Ammons that I started to, to discover and Meadlux Lewis and, and all these old records that I found. So I thought, oh, there's a bit of a sound like that in this music, but it's written out on, out on the score. So I can do that. I can do that in public because I can get it right if I practice nine hours a day. <laughs> and fight the battle going over the top. There's a chance I could get that right. There's a chance that I cannot be beaten by this and it will be good enough. I want to be good enough at this. So yeah, the the four piano blues led into um, other works. Then By then I had gone to the conservatoire and then I had Philip Martin as my teacher who had taught Mark Tanner. So the legacy continued and then I arrived saying, oh, I play Copeland knowing that um, Philip has specialized in 20th century American music. So that was great. So he also didn't mind that I loved Boogie Woogie, steered me into the direction of more concert appropriate repertoire. And, um, and so then more of the Copeland, which was the Copeland piano sonata. And again, like he, he was like, just try this piece of music. What do you think? I don't remember really listening to much music. I just always just played it. I just got the sheet music and I played it. And um, yeah, a bit of a like, what is this? What's happening on the page? A slight battle with what it was. There's not that much element of blues in it, but it's quite dance like in the middle movement. And then it, the last movement is like just this sparsity of texture and it's broadening and broadening and broadening. It's an amazing, it's like, monolithic work is fantastic so it went from being again a little bit scared didn't really connect and in one moment like that was it that was my piece that was my piece that I played it was I loved it I lived and breathed this piece I dreamt it and that transition from something that's a bit fearful and unknown to you existing because of it I loved it so much. So then Copeland then was like, well, who else is there? There's Ives. And then 
it was the idea of, yeah, let's explore some Ives. Philip said, do you know the work of Charles Ives? I love, I love hearing the sound of, uh, and I always played by ear. So that would lead me to explore things away from the music. And I especially loved going to this school where they had a Steinway concert grand in the hall and no one else seemed to play it. So I would ask my dad to drop me off early and then I could just pop myself in there and play and explore the sounds. So that was an amazing experience to have this concert grand. The first thing in the morning before school started and last thing at night before security came to shut and lock everything up. So I just had that space on my own with no one around so I could explore the sounds then. And I did a lot of improvising then. Very simple improvising. More just atmospheric sounds that I enjoyed. And... If I'd asked you this at the time, would you have said that you improvise? No. (laughs) Because your line has been pretty firm... I don't improvise. (laughs) I can't do that. No, no, I wouldn't have said. Because if anyone else is listening, they might not think it's good enough. So I never would let anyone hear this. And it was just my little sound world. Just a little sound bubble to exist in. Of peaceful sounds. They tended to be what I now know would have been modes it was just sounds and two pedals the unicorder and the sustain I love that sound world together so um then sort of three things orbiting around each other this if there had been anyone to hear then they would have judged it this breaks my heart a bit well it breaks my heart completely and yet I firmly and thoroughly relate to this need for privacy and solitude Mm. for some kinds of creative work Mm. There are things that I don't talk to anyone about as well. Mm. And it's funny that you had that from the off to the point of flat out lying to us, really. (laughs) Your musician friends were quite busy (laughs) being very keen for you to improvise (laughs) with us. Um, but, you know, you had that from the outset and you needed that. And I actually, you know, I don't much like this sort of, this thing, whatever it is, saying, know your place. That's pretty hard to hear. Well, I'm glad you can say it out loud. I've never heard it before, but I think maybe I've not been asked the question you asked. Mm. So I don't know where that's come from. 
But I really respect the impulse towards privacy. Mm. To know, well, if the deal is, if if I can only do this when no one knows I'm even doing it, mm. so the deal is no one knows, mm. and I do it, and I sit there in my abandoned hall with my borrowed Steinway, <laughs> cooking up, cooking up a delicious soup. Hmm. <laughs> It was a really safe space, especially that period. It was a really lovely time to just be in the dark, playing probably like a long time. I don't know, it would feel like hours that I wouldn't have stopped playing. Just exploring the sound and very gentle sounds and just circling through really simple harmonies. Yeah. It was peaceful. Hmm. That, and nothing, nothing was prescribed. And I think I didn't lie because I wouldn't lie. The truth is, if I then the truth, had Melissa? to do that in front of someone, I physically couldn't. It wasn't that I would decide not to. I phys- I would want to in my mind be able so to. So I, I think it went something like this. The <laughs> phrase might have been, I couldn't. I just possibly couldn't. <laughs> yeah. Which implied that you never did. Mm. But what we didn't know. <laughs> Is that I would like be freezing. I would. It would be okay, a freeze. Yeah. It no, would be a... I, I, I remember that. I it, remember how hard that was. Yeah, it would be like a mental and a physical block. Like I'm stuck, like yeah. I've got a lump in my throat Yeah. where there must be a word and I can't yeah. get it out. Listen, I'm playing with you about this whole <laughs> lying thing. It sounds like you knew how it had to be. And that's really important. Hmm. That's actually really, really important. I wish I had been able to play with others freely like that I would have liked to I would have loved to I wanted to and as soon as someone was there I couldn't I got blocked couldn't I couldn't do anything Mm -hmm. my body would be full of tension and apprehension and it, it would be some kind of thing that was stronger than me and my head understood and I think I, I think I, yeah, no, I, I, I'm sort of remembering, um, remembering a, a rather awful afternoon where um, I showed up with a song that wanted a viola part and gave you some loose ass, hummed, just try it like this, start on this note and go from there kind of instructions. And... Um, it dawned on me a bit late how, um, like, what you were going through in response to that exposure. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. No, I and mean, I hadn't remembered, but I don't know why it would have been that difficult. And I think then that was what was frustrating because I didn't know why did I get stuck. 
Mm-hmm. Why could it? Why did it physically stop mm-hmm. if anyone was around? Mm-hmm. Unless it was something written on the page, or that I'd managed to get it from memory. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do anything that was a single note other than what was written, if anyone else was around. But then years later, <laughs> I don't know. Ten years later, there's the anxiety that. Well, I can do exactly what's written on the page. I can play this Mozart sonata in a recital. It will be note perfect. I've practiced that much. I've performed it that much. But hang on. I still can't please everyone. What if someone in the audience doesn't agree with my choice of phrasing? Or how much I've phrased off this slur. There's still so much where I might not get it right. It can be note perfect. I still might not please every single person. So that that was a difficult thing to come to terms with later on. I think it was so much about trying to do what was right. What were the circumstances under which you began to improvise with others present? Um, I don't know when. Am I improvising with others present? I think you are. Um, I think uh, you are. Am I? Um, uh, it is. I think it might be something I am sort of coming to terms with gradually over time, but I think it's only the past few years. This is what I'm thinking. I'm just yeah. trying to try. So, I mean, there is evidence accruing in, in the world outside. So I sat at a kitchen table in Devon and went through your Instagram with a close friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, a, a songwriter, Anthony Lane, and we went through your one minute a day improvisations. And he sat there having a moment saying, This is extraordinary. This is deeply moving. I'm going to install Instagram so I can follow this. So somehow we got at least to there. We got to the place where you're on stage with the Camilles on Friday night and you're saying, well, we're just jamming these songs really. And I think given the nature of the gig, that's quite appropriate. It's an all right night to experiment on. So something's shifted. I'm interested in what that process has been. Mm. Okay, yeah, so maybe that is, I think it's about basically trying to find myself again. It's about coming full circle to whom I was when I was 17, when I had that hall to myself. Or sometimes when the piano was just 
pushed into the back corner of the side room of the hall and I would manage to wedge it forward just enough to squeeze in onto the piano stool, turn the lights out and then just still be with that piano. And I wanted somehow to get back to who I was. And it's taken a long time to sort of realize that and come to terms with that because I was trying to always do what was right and what would please people. I was trying to find in that things that I loved and that connected with me so that I would be living a life that was full of conviction that I absolutely believed in. So what I delivered, I believed in and I loved and it, and it was my life. I lived and breathed it and I found those niche pieces of music that felt like that fitted my character and what I wanted to say from my personal experiences without using my words, without having to say what my personal experiences were, but I could still communicate my story wordlessly. I think that's why it ended up being the types of pieces that I focused on. And then it's taken many years to get there to the, what I realize now, but it was, and I've, I've had the past two years to figure this out. It, and well, maybe the past six years and increasingly more highlighted in the past two years. Yeah. I, I had to do a lot of things to exist, to survive, to get through what I had to get through, to achieve what I wanted to achieve, to carve a career and a profession in something I wanted to do. And, um, a lot of who I was had to fall by the wayside and I had to push myself to do a lot of things that were really challenging, particularly because those are the expectations or well, you're a classical pianist. So you're expected to perform. That wasn't, that wasn't what I signed up for. <laughs> I just love playing the piano. <laughs> I just love playing the piano. So then I had to do so many things that were out of my comfort zone and pushed me too far, really. And then, and then I had to survive with student debt <laughs> and master's debt and in another city. And I needed to figure that out. I needed to compromise a lot. And I just always thought and hoped that one day I could get back to who I was. One day I could get back to that person who was like 17 and felt freer and had that time and space for dreaming in sound and in arts. Like you said, like at 17, 18, I didn't know whether to go one of two ways, an art degree or a music degree. I love them both equally. So I always wanted, I always missed that time, always missed who I had been. I missed having to be all the other things I had to be to survive. And I always dreamed, I thought, gosh, I would have made it in my life if I can come back to who I was. And if I can have one day those things in my life again. So I parked a lot of stuff. <laughs> I put it to one side and I got on with what I had to get on with. 
with the, and I think I believe that one day I'll come back to this, one day I'll have the chance. If I just get some security under, under me, under my feet, it will free me up in the future to come back to that headspace and have the time. And what you were coming back to was fundamentally what you'd started even as a child. Yes. And it had blossomed privately mm. in this secret dark hall everyone's gone home music making practice but actually what you were what you were wanting was what you already had mm. was already you and was already there mm. blossoming quietly in private mm. I find that extraordinary. So we were speaking about your life in improvisation and how it was at first a very private thing and how important it was to remain invisible. And it seems like in the last five or six years, you have allowed yourself to become much more visible. And I was wondering about the role of interdisciplinarity in your sort of emergence into what you're doing now. Because when I think of you beginning to improvise in public, when I think of you beginning to be credited as author, maker, arranger, songwriter on things. The characteristic seems to be interdisciplinarity. So working with artists and dancers at the same time and maybe throwing a choir. And <laughs> um, yeah, I was wondering if you could, because that seems very you, that mixture of media and that mixture of people that seems to have been really important and that's baked into Half Light and how that track works. I mean, you know, you have released a 14 minute debut single <laughs> with mixture of um, modern classical piano, um, two electronic producers, um, there's a free time drum solo in it. Uh, <laughs> And, yeah, the only reason, they're only, the only reason that there isn't a dancer is that there isn't a video yet. <laughs> so, yeah, can you, can you say a bit about 
when you started to allow yourself to bridge between different art forms and yeah just give me a steer as to whether i'm right that that's part of this beginning to be more visible yes i think so yeah i think it's because my happy place is being part of something bigger than myself so i'm contributing to something more than just me and i'm also allowed to i can somehow try to be a little bit anonymous and still not be seen In spite of playing a very loud piano. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I, I would encourage people to listen to the track. (laughs) (laughs) Melissa may not. We can can debate whether Melissa has managed to remain invisible. (laughs) She is audible. in a kind of piano going down a volcano sort of way. (laughs) Yeah. I, the referring back to you seeing the work with Bobby Previtt. Yes. That was significant because I hadn't been able to do, I didn't find a joint degree. I thought I'll specialize in music. I wanted to come back to that. And at that point I tried. So I was quite interested in music in response to art and art in response to music. So can you say a bit about the constellations, paintings and pieces? Yes. So the 23 constellations of Johan Miro's set of works, um, and then Bobby Previtt composed small pieces like miniatures in response to those constellations, those works. And it's for fairly large ensemble with mixed instrumentation. Bobby Previtt is a drummer, an amazing jazz drummer from America. And there were, there's like a Fender Rhodes in there. There's a harp, the percussion, of course. There's trumpet, saxophone, piano, can't remember all the other instrumentation, but there are the, there are these glorious little pieces in response to each piece of art. And yeah, little journeys, little narratives for each piece of art. They're really beautiful. So I contacted Bobby Previtt to ask if I could perform those because they'd been a commission of Birmingham Jazz. So I got in touch with him because the score hadn't been published. So that was great. So he gave permission to perform a selection of those. And then we did do improvisations in between. Um, so that was one of the first piece, that was one of the first events where I was able to exhibit elements of art. And we installed lots of TV screens to show an artist's work. Um, They're absolutely compelling. The paintings and the pieces are absolutely compelling. Yes. 
And the pieces are little pieces in the sense that they have a kind of vignette quality. Mm. But they're they're quite big in their sound and in mm. their scope of imagination. Like mm. they seem to me like um Yeah, they've 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 got they've got the they've got the power of really good short stories, those pieces. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Or I it's love like that. a kind of loose narrative of episodes. Mm. Mm, exactly. I do love short stories in the sense of short pieces of music in miniatures. I don't know why Half-Life became 15 minutes, but I kind of do know because I also love big epic works that take you on a journey. And that was written. We did that as a commission for Van Hula Dance the Company. And so she said, could I do the music? So it was this collaboration. Mm. Ah, I'd forgotten that's the yes. way it arose. Yes. So it was a collaboration about creating music for a narrative of dance and music. And exploring the themes with Laura and what it could mean to us and others compelled me to want to write it as a song and to have words. Okay. I started to feel that maybe there were some words to be said. And I had worked with Laura before. I was improv that's right, I was improvising to her dance before. Yeah. And then likewise I felt like I needed to add another medium and if it was Laura dancing and it was me on the piano and I'm ped I'm using the pedals what more can I do so I can contribute the voice and then maybe I can contribute some words so we did a small piece that was an improvisation but it did have some moments where there are selections of words I wouldn't call it a song but it was just another texture that I could add when it's just me and just my two hands and myself. I just wanted to give more. So I did start to add words and I felt compelled to do so by Laura's vocabulary of her dance. Yeah, what was Powerful. it in, in her dance? That, I mean, she is an extraordinary dancer. Mm. She is a how on earth could anyone do that sort yeah. of dancer. But what was it in that dance that compelled you to add words? Uh, something strikes me about the power that she has and conviction. I think there might be something I think there might be something which is if if her vocabulary is movement I kind of want I kind of want to find words I kind of want to help her speak or that person find their words I'm not telling their story. I don't know their story. 
feels like there's something more to be said. So it kind of still feels like it's not me. I am fascinated that in your eyes, the movement required words. I'm just hanging on that a minute or giving it a minute because I'm very aware as a writer of how words require movement. of how inherent in writing words is movement, how the movement between images, between ideas, how the actual distance and space that words conjure outline, fragment, collapse, reform. The space between is movement. The capacity to do that is based on our sense of movement. Hmm. I'm absolutely unequivocal about that. And... If people would stop writing with greater reach, greater fluidity, and greater courage after I've put them through movement exercises, I would stop putting them through the bloody movement exercises. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Okay. But again and again, the experiential research keeps bringing it back. There's a link here. There's a really strong link here. Hmm. I'm not suggesting there's a direct equivalence between your experience of watching Laura dance and needing to find words. But that made me pause and think, ah. Mm. I've seen those two things talk to each other before. So, Mm. you've come to this songwriting through collaboration. That in itself is really interesting. Yes. And secretly, I did explore a little just experimentation with words <laughs> some years before. And, and that would have been... Um, <clears throat> so when's the volume of poetry coming out? <laughs> <laughs> or is it a bloody novel? What have you been up to, Melissa? <laughs> That was this library. They just used to turn off the lights. I used to just sit there in the corner. It was lovely. Yes. There were pens and shit. It was... (laughs) I could not have a doodle. Well, 
I wouldn't say that it was songwriting. It was, it was going through an emotional time and thinking, why don't I just let it cry out of me audibly? There's no one here to hear it. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to just be sound because there's a whole lot of things that haven't been said in word. And on one particular occasion, I wasn't at the piano, but I thought maybe these thoughts need to spill out of me in words. And I thought maybe they just need to come out and be out of my body and my self and my soul and my mind and headspace and everything. Maybe it just needs to come out. I was doing something else. I was busy with some task, some errand in the house on my own. And so I let that spill out in sound and then some of the words got stuck in my head, would, would repeat. And then I just let them come out in sound that became, I guess, melodies. And so there's no notebook here, there's no, no recorder. No. There's just you and your voice and the sound you're making. That was the first time I think that I did that was at my sister's, yeah. And um, kind of a, like, I guess it was just an outpouring of what was in my mind. And, and again, just to myself, no one was there. So I thought maybe this is better out of me, I think, subconsciously. So um, I just kind of sang it out, yes. You know, if you might like cry it out. Yes. So I was like, I think this is like, I'm just going to, it seems to be just singing it out. Yes. So I sort of let it like sing, sing, sing out because um, no one was around and uh, until I, I had exhausted myself and it's that yawning at the end of crying and it's gone, you know, and you're tired, but it's gone. So that's what I did on that occasion, uh, and I remember that distinctly. And then afterwards I thought, oh, I was going through another period. And I was like, I wonder if the things that, you know, that like the inner dialogue of your mind, I wonder if that needs to just come out and not be still in my head. And I was living in the house on my own, no one was around, I knew my neighbors wouldn't have minded me playing the piano late at night. So I just quietly sat and let that inner dialogue be released out of myself by just playing at the piano quietly in the night and letting the words come out in sound. And I found that very helpful, yeah. Can you bring me a tiny bit closer to that? So the emotion, the energy in your body makes sound, sound makes melody, in melody there are carried 
What form are the words in as they begin to emerge? Just thoughts. Just thoughts. Sing out my thoughts. Yes. Mm. So you're singing words to start with. Yes, there it's words singing out my thoughts. It's, yes. it's what are my thoughts that and that they came out in sound. Yes. Yeah. And I thought and I wasn't but I wasn't thinking at the time. I wasn't consciously making decisions about what I was doing. It was late at night. I wasn't going to get to sleep. I was worried. I've never been able to go to sleep at night for worrying about haven't done enough so it was another late night it was me living in the house on my own suddenly and and kind of trying to process the loneliness in the night and I thought the piano would bring me comfort and I my neighbors played for the CBSO so I was very lucky and I thought I don't think they'll mind if the piano is playing so quietly at midnight and um, so again, I just put the soft pedal down and the sustain. And I thought that would bring me comfort to hear those sounds. And then the thoughts that I had could spill out. And then maybe that would help me get to sleep. So I just did that until I was tired and until I could sleep. Mm. Are there songs that have come out of those? Late night. Singing it out of yourself. Sessions. Or did those, did those words and melodies just remain in that moment? Some things I remembered. So you've used, you've used I didn't what use you them, made. But I didn't use them. But you didn't use them. No. Okay. There are so many things that I remembered and stayed with me from these occasions when I've done that. Um, that I've thought, oh, I wonder if that's how people can write songs. <laughs> I wonder if that could be made into a song. I wonder if I could write a song. But it seemed too formalized. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to get it right. What so I didn't come back to it. too formalized? Because I don't know how to do it. Ah, so songwriting seemed too formalized. Yes, yeah, no one's told me, taught me how to do that, so I don't know how to do it. So how can I get it right? So I didn't come back to it, and I can remember those little fragments and they're almost like little like just a little not even a song it's just a little phrase or something that I might have or a little fragment of something or like a little lullaby or something the tiniest little fragments of things that I'll come back to in my mind and then I thought, because that was helpful in the night, then I thought, I'll do that in the car if I'm driving. I can just sing, sing out my thoughts. 
And so I have done that over the past. And then, and then I'm like, oh, well, if I'm going to try and... Maybe I'd like to try and make something. So m- maybe shall I voice memo this with a, with a view to coming back to trying to make something. And yeah, so I have hundreds and hundreds of voice memos of things that I don't come back to to try and make, or, or I have tried and then I've just not known how to do it. So yeah, it sort of seems a strange position to be in because I've got all these little f- sketches. Yeah, little sketchbooks, like lots and lots of sketches everywhere. And I want to be able to make something out of them. But if I try, I don't know what to do with them. Or it feels just like that's all it was. That That is what it was. In fact, actually... There are these Charles Ives songs, and I do love them, and they're pretty unusual. What are they called? I think oh. I've, I think I might know these. Many of them. I've uh-huh. got like certain ones that I like. Um, can't remember the names right now. The Cage, I think, and they they might just have six lines, and it doesn't seem to form. A specific formulaic structure of writing. It's just ideas sketched. And he set that to music and they're pretty unusual. I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I might have things like that. It'll be like the idea that those little six little piano pieces, each one was enough. And it might've just been, I don't know, five chords or something or seven disparate sounds, and that was enough. And I think sometimes these little sketches that I've made, it sort of feels like that's what it was. Yes, yeah. And if I try to do more with it, it changes it entirely. Yes. I think... A few things I could pick up there. So, for me, you've stumbled is the wrong word because you went straight to something which was very important in the moment. So, in a moment, at the hand of some real necessity to express yourself. You've gone straight to where I think some of the most important qualities of song come from. So I've been listening to the way you sing, the way you fit. Fit is the wrong word because it's mechanistic. The word, the sound of the word, the meaning of the word and its shape and the melody really dovetail together in the way you 
right insofar as I've been able to hear it, you know. Half-Light is the tip of an iceberg of voice notes mm. by the sounds of it. Um, and perhaps the thin end of a wedge artistically, although it's a pretty thick, thin end. <laughs> 14 minute neoclassical thin end of some iceberg sized fucking wedge. <laughs> Um, but that that growing together of sound word sound word meaning a melodic shape you know and how it sits in your body how it sits in your vocals for me that's irreplaceable Mm. that's the kind of songwriting that makes song irreplaceable for me. Mm. Um, and it's a central, central characteristic of all the songwriters I love. You know, the people who really can make your hair stand on end. Mm. So you didn't know how to do it because no one had taught you, but you went straight, straight and with some courage into the face of this adversity, necessity. You didn't stay up scrolling Facebook and taking pills. You went to meet it in some way. Mm. And that's led you to this practice, which feels to me absolutely dead right. Mm. You know, I've always loved free writing for discovery, you know, as a way to generate, you know, particularly ideas for poems mm. and often complete pieces come out. Mm. in that way and I think what you're doing is the sound equivalent it's this it's this cry of pain this cry of humanity this working out of the moment this this encounter with the moment, which produces what? Well, it gets you from wanting to cry or scream or tear the door down to yawning and ready to go to bed. Mm. That was good. Um, but also, you found a way of exploring. Mm that is actually a method that's applicable beyond coping. Mm. And I'm wondering, partly from your expression as you were talking about those little bits you remembered from that night, whether also 
the strength and the vividness of that experience imp impressed itself on those lines, those meanderings, those snippets. Mm. You, you were kind of looking like, hmm, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> When everyone's forgotten I ever did this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> I might have a look at those again. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's something about the sense of immediacy and exploring it in the moment. I'd, I'm not thinking, what are the words or where does this go? And I'm not looking at the keys and thinking, what is this? I'm just pressing. They happen to be keys that make sounds. So you move somewhere to how it might feel better or it sounds different. So you move that and move that and try something different or not even try it, just keep moving through. And just let words yeah, like fall out with sound. Not fall out in disagreement. <laughs> that sounds like that could be the most interesting song at all. <laughs> um, yes, so uh, it's, I think when you said free writing, mm -hmm. I was like, ooh, that seems to resonate, the free freeness of an experience yeah yeah i mean what is free writing that's a whole that's a whole different conversation mm -hmm. or it's it's very simple and it's very strong strongly related to what you were talking about um there are a sort of for me a lot of um a lot of specifics around it that are quite important mm -hmm. um but For me, how I use it and how I encourage other people to use it is to use writing headlong and continuously as a lens through which to encounter the present moment, whatever that present moment contains. Mm. So you were you were singing and playing constantly you weren't stopping to think no you this was this was a con, this was a continuous this was a continuous sound mm. you were making yeah. and you were you were using that as a lens to like focus and transact something in that moment mm. as a way of meeting meeting what you were feeling in full yeah and going through it. Yes. And that is that is the essence of how I use free writing. I think you I think they are directly equivalent in those, you know, in those two those two specific contexts. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I really relate to that, exactly what you've said. And also now I can't remember the specifics, but I did study English literature. <laughs> but there's something about like the stream of consciousness. I enjoyed 
I used to enjoy writing, journaling the stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed writing anything that came to my head by hand into my journals in the night. That's how I tried to get to sleep when I started uni, when I left home. I thought if I write it all out of me, maybe I can get to sleep. So that would be the stream of consciousness in case there's not anything that's been missed <laughs> that bothers me and keeps me awake. So I would do that. And then perhaps, which I'm only re realizing now, that is part of that experience now, which I have explored more so in the past year since I've had the time to be present in those experiences via the stream of consciousness. And do you do that through meditation, well, through this music, through writing? Through, mu through music, through yeah. my piano den. <laughs> <laughs> in my piano den, yes. And through humming when I walk. Mm. If I'm walking, I'm humming small loops of melody that repeat and yeah if i guess that feels meditative i've always done that since i was a child because we would horse ride so to the rhythm of the the horse's hooves along the droves i would hum an ostinato mm. And to the rhythm of, of the pumping stations on the Somerset levels. Yeah. And sometimes you'd get the cross rhythms of the pumping station and the horse's hooves on the on the tarmac, on the roads. Yeah. Why the fuck are you waiting for someone to teach you to write songs? <laughs> so you'd get, get this great cross rhythm and you're on the horse swaying with the motion, the movement, of the horse and you'd get these cross rhythms with the pumping station I don't think they pump anymore do they don't know if they make that I'm sound I'm not sure I haven't I haven't spent I haven't spent that much time there in the last few years I'm not no. sure no but you would so you'd have the vast I think there's some pumping going on or that would be an inland sea again. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Quite which stations are doing what these no. days, I'm not sure. It was, I'd love to hear that sound again. That's the sound of childhood. That's the, that's the sense of this vast space, flatland, big sky, silence because you're not speaking. Like there's no conversation you're just lost in your own thoughts, even if you're in company. We used to ride with three of us together. Um, but you just have the rhythm of the horse's hooves against the pumping station, cross rhythms. And then I would hum a melody, an ostinato that would interweave around them. And then in my head that might keep going and then I could put another melody or something on top in my imagination. Because no so one's close enough to hear the, it. So we, we were... We were we were sitting the other night and we were dissecting the rhythm in one of your tracks um, with EIF and you were, you were busy counting one thing and playing another and doing all kinds of 
wonderful things were tuplets. And my defensive thought there was, oh, well, that's all the wonderful musical training Melissa has undertaken. (laughs) Her pony taught it to her. (laughs) She's just being let loose on the Somerset levels, the ponies and pumping stations. Yeah, and the drone of the... um, Maybe that's why I love drones. The drones of the... Hercules coming over Alamore on the flight path to the Yeovilton airbase and that low hum as they're coming or the chinook as they're coming all the rhythms that you sound that you that are found the sounds in nature and the space around you without the conversation without the dialogue so I think that's why yeah I didn't use words for a long time until it was like like the spilling out of me now Mm, like mm. that's it's like got to come out i wonder if because the texture of experiences is important here you were speculating or having a tea break about where your love of music was slightly challenging tuning might come from but you know, we grew we grew up four miles apart on the Somerset levels, and uh, you were one side of the river, and I was the other, and you were rather near the river, um, and I was slightly further away from it, which is significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and. This feeling for the texture of experiences you have, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the texture of your experiences growing up. So could you describe your first piano, where it sat, what it sounded like? Mm-hmm what it was like to begin to play yeah i th- i think my first piano was actually a fisher price toy and it had just over an octave and it made the cutest sound like bells and was it electronic or was it a old toy piano old toy piano are you aware of the Toy Piano Composers Collective? I think I have maybe heard of that. I think I need to put you in touch with them. <laughs> so, and, and I've been into the loft of, on a few occasions to try and find this little piano because it's really precious in my memory and I, I think it's in a box stored in the loft. So I, I really want to get that when I can at my parents. Um, that was my first piano. It was very sweet. It was plastic. It was tiny and just made the cutest sound. And I thought I had made a composition on that. And it it was ascending thirds of the C major scale. And you could just get a little more than one octave. Then you had to start to descend again. And yeah, I remember thinking that I'd made a composition. And I think that was when I was eight. I think I'd asked 
could I have piano lessons? And I think it was because my friend played the piano. They had piano in their house. So that was part of what happened after dinner was just fun times at, at the piano. So I think I had asked for piano lessons so we couldn't afford piano. So I had a Fisher Price piano <laughs> and somehow mum managed to find money for this piano lessons locally. And then my granny said, she seems to love it so much. You really need to get a piano, but we couldn't afford that. But we did live off jumble sales. So there was a chance <laughs> that we might be able to pick up a piano from somewhere. And so then we did go to an auction that was with one of the jumble sales. And then there was an old piano and my grand was like, you're going to have to get that for her. She will love it. So we got this piano it sold for 14 pounds and then we didn't know how to get it back. But because... Ah, so there's a precedent to the high drama that got your piano into the piano den. This <laughs> yeah. is like, okay, I understand. Maybe <laughs> maybe you need to tell that story as well. Anyway, tell the story of the first piano. I'm beginning to understand where your latter-day obsession with jumble sales comes. <laughs> yeah. Because if you originally found your best friend at a jumble sale... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> so... Because my parents were both self-employed, my dad is a builder and my mum, a hairdresser who actually wanted to, to breed Shetland ponies, that was her dream. So we did have an old trailer. Um, we didn't have a house. My dad was building, trying to build our house single-handedly after working all day on building sites, on his own jobs. Then in the evenings and the weekends, he was trying to build our house all on his own. So we lived in, ca in a caravan. Um, so. I think I met you early <laughs> on when you'd finally got into the house. Oh, yes. I think the first rehearsal I came to, we were in the house. Yes. Um, and the cement was still drying on, you know, cement and rendering was still drying at various points. Yes. Um, I think it took 12 years. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's massively faster than I could build a house on evenings <laughs> yeah. and weekends, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think we need to give Barry respect where it's due. Oh, here. absolutely. He's a um, perfectionist. I couldn't build a house. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. So it perhaps could have been done quick. Anyway, I, no, but, I'm not going to get yeah, into this. I couldn't have built a house. Right now, working a day job, could I build a house in my spare time? No way. Yeah. How he took upon himself that project, the courage to do that, the skills and the knowledge and the lack of finances. <laughs> it was a dream. So he embarked upon this dream, as did my mum, breeding Shetland ponies. And I think we all kind of existed in our kind of independent, individual, but coexisting bubbles of dreams. And we just tried to get by. I feel like that's how we were raised. It was like what you dream of, you try to make happen. I haven't thought of that before, but that seems a very apt description of your family as I encountered it. Mm. Not much conversation, 
because we were busy with the things that we loved. Not much money because we were busy with the things that we loved. And you got your introduction into cross rhythms, listening to the sound of the sluices against the clip, clip, clop of Shetland pony feet. Yeah. And we got the piano back in this old horse trailer. This tin, tin trailer. And then, well, we couldn't get it in the house because we didn't have a house. So we kept it in the horse box. So that's where I got to play on a small child's chair that was too low to play. So I sat on an upturned bucket in the straw on this child's chair to reach the keys. And I think I loved that sound, the sound swimming around the horse box, the horse trailer. You know, it's not a box. It was, it was a tin box. It's a tin trailer. Is it one of those um, horse trailers that you can? Is it kind of one of those small blue pod ones, or or a slightly or a slightly bigger one? Just one that you tow put on the tow bar. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's 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 kind of one of the the sort of shorter, lower kind. Mm. So you were really like. Yeah, I mean, God, talk about experiencing sound in a small bubble. <laughs> yeah. you, were kind, you were kind of in, you were in a kind of metal second, secondary resonator there. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's how it felt. And I would play harmonic fifths. I didn't know that's what it was. But my left hand would set about playing repetitive drones and... Ex- exploring and playing around with something in the right hand that was little, I guess, melodic riffs. And this, the resonance of these harmonic fifths, because that's just how your hand falls. So I'll press one and five. I like the sound of that. And the pedal down and it, it bouncing off the metal casing around me. I loved it. And the piano couldn't be tuned. It was out of tune. It was battered and bruised and probably a hundred years old already. It never managed to be tuned to concert pitch. I like the idea of playing a really old piano. Oh, yes. And of course, there's this gorgeous thing in the corner, which you've adopted now. (laughs) This tiny, tiny little parlour upright, Mm. which is, yeah, probably also some serious rebuilding away from all the keys even working yeah but my god when someone's playing something on the notes that work on that yes it's just heart melting Mm. i think there's an honesty in the sound Mm. yeah of course it was heavenly to find a concert Steinway grand piano. And in lock the... yourself in a really big <laughs> trailer yeah. with it. Yes. But there's no more authenticity to that sound than there is to a 14-pound beaten-up 100-year-old piano in the back of a horse box. And that's helped me go through a few things in the past two years that we've experienced in this, like, as the climate's been so different and like 
I guess one of the first times when I experimented with sound is because I had also been looking into practices in Buddhism and I'd had an experience meeting my neighbor just as he was passing away. I just got to know him. He he is he practices Buddhism and it was amazing to meet him in his final stages of life and how he embraced that. So I started to look into how he could be so calm in this time of his life and that led to mindfulness and being present in the moment of what is actually happening and not trying to hide from it, embracing it actually. Because also that's the only way that it might be able to be to pass through you and not remain in you. Yes, yes. And so I think all of those things came together and then I thought that might be something that I can use to help me process these experiences. Yes. And then that, again, that's like how that's really helped me actually even in this past year when there have been circumstances i've just felt compelled to be in my piano den which is like a little nest all on my own it's a little nest with a big piano in it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah get the pedals down lid up and then just yeah, experience what I'm going through with my thoughts in sound until until it's until it's over and it's gone. Yeah. There is so much that's fascinating here. But the thing I want to point out is that I feel like at the point where you're doing this thing, where you're at the piano, singing your thoughts, playing your thoughts, or where you're at the page writing in free form, when you're in this continuous experience of expression, at that point, the gate it goes through, you might go to that activity because you have an experience you need to deal with inside you. You might go to that for artistic reasons. You, know, you might go there to discover something. Um, you might go there for spiritual reasons. You've know, seen the parallels to meditation. Mm. Um, you might go there um, for research. But the gateway in your mind is the same, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm. It's this state where you are trying to stay as close as you can to the experience mm. with your mind, with your hands, with your voice, mm. with whatever instruments you're using, 
whether that's a writing instrument or a musical instrument, that encounter, your motives might be therapeutic, artistic, research, spirituality, whatever. But that encounter is the same. Mm. It's, it's, it's a phenomenological encounter at the core of it. Mm. And as you go through that gate, you meet the reality of what you're experiencing. And as you meet it, something begins to change. Mm. One state begins to break down into another. Mm. Something new begins to emerge. It's a state of encounter and of living change. Mm. And it's extraordinary. Mm. And for me, it feels real. There's an overriding feeling that this is real. And I feel like it has to be real. Well, everything for me, it's important that it's all real. Mm. Yes. The openness. The commitment and the humility with which one approaches that encounter, I think are the things that most determine what one can experience in it and carry away from it. I'm looping back full circle to this clumsy attempt at the beginning of our conversation that I made at trying to describe the encounter that seems to be present in your music, that when your fingers hit those keys, time stops and is replaced by a living moment. Hmm. There's something about how sincere you are in that encounter, just with the phenomenon of sound hmm. and the feeling of the keys under your fingers even before you get into, you know, the material a composer might have given you or the material, your own thoughts and emotions and musical training and all your listening and influences might have given you. There's something about the sincerity and the truthfulness that you bring to that which is extraordinary in the gig on Friday where you were fighting a difficult live sound situation, there's feedback ringing through the monitors. You were partially audible out front, totally inaudible at the back where you were sitting. 
and still I was sitting with another pianist actually as it happens and still as we watched your hands it was as though through the attention that lives in your playing and now it sounds like in your other encounters with making, experiencing things, it was like you had your own silence wrapped around you. It was like it had its own space to resonate in, even through the mud of the PA that wasn't really doing piano that well. You know, even under the shrieking of the mic that kept feeding back and no one could find where the loop was and, mm. you know. It had its own space wrapped around it. And I think that space is the depth of your attention which other people can enter into. Mm. Yeah, everything that you say makes so much sense to me, even though it might not be something I've thought of myself. It's like you're able to articulate in words my experience. And uh, all I do know is that the piano is like, is a safe space. Mm. And the sound of the piano is like a comfort blanket. Yeah. I just find it just this completely safe space that is around. It's kind of, it's a kind of say it's a like a few meters. It's be from me 2 meters ahead of me, 2 meters behind me. M 1 to 2 meters behind me, 1 to 2 meters in front of me, all around, and that's a safe space with the sound. That's what it is. So, I absolutely love it. It's... I don't know how I came to find it, but... It's such a comfort and solace that it was my companion, it was my best friend. So when I found that and I was... Um, lucky enough to have a piano um, it was that was my safe space that was my conversation with the piano I think the things I didn't say out loud I said to the piano I wasn't necessarily trying to tell anyone else but that was my best friend and then I think I do feel that the piano has been like my best friend forever. It's like my companion for life. And no one else needs to be part of that conversation or like no one else needs to hear that because existing in it is enough. And then there's that strange situation where it seems like you do something that people should be a part of or they want to hear it. They want you to exhibit that to the outside world. I don't feel like any anyone needs to see me. I just love the piano. Do you remember when we went to see um, 
Do you remember when we went to see Kelly Jo Phelps at the Glee Club in Birmingham? Yes. And, um, yeah, we went along to Starstruck Acoustic Guitarists and Melissa. Um, and this, this seriously, this seriously introverted dude in a woolly hat pulled up a chair and just started playing. And the only thing he said throughout the entire concert was, you know, aside from the name of the songs was this little mention that he tried to venture out amidst the Christmas shopping crowds um, and got completely overwhelmed. It was a nightmare. I only went, went out for a coffee, he said. <laughs> um, and he was just in... Yeah, just in a one-man raindrop with his guitar. Mm. And he played and he played, and he was only talking to his guitar. He wasn't talking to us. Mm. But we were drawn in to the extent that my experience was at the beginning of the concert, there was this kind of one-man Kelly Joe sized raindrop mm. um, around him and his guitar. And by the end, that raindrop included every single one of us. There were about 200 people in that room. Ah, okay, yeah. Within its surface tension. Yes. We were all part of his conversation with his guitar. Ah. Silent partners. Mm. Feels like, yes, I don't mind if kind people are present to go through the experience with me. But I'm not performing. Mm. And I don't feel that anyone's there to see a performance. Yeah, more this feeling that we're people in a shared space. Yeah. And there's an experience that we could go through together. Yes. As it travels in time, so it's like a journey. Yes. Mm. And that we're in it together. Yes. And that is what you created with the with the room art gigs. Mm. You know, with the performances here. Like as a performer. I I don't see it as a one-way transfer at mm. all. Um, and as much of the difficulty, say when you have a difficult live sound situation, you know, a live room, that, a loud room that actually becomes impenetrable in terms of you know, figuring out what's going on in it, well, half the problem, or maybe less than half the problem, um, is the fact that you can't hear yourself and you can't hear your fellow musicians. 
Mm. Like that's a bugbear, but if if you know your material well enough, you can get around it. Mm. You know, like you said, just take me out of the monitors. I'll play by feel. Yeah. The bigger problem is actually you can't sense the audience. Mm. You know, the reason I want to play unamplified if I possibly can, or very sparingly amplified, is that puts me on a parity with the audience. Mm. I like that. And the energy for performing comes in great part from the audience's listening. Mm. They allow something else to happen, which cannot happen otherwise. Mm. I remember when I went to the first um, gig I've been to after lockdown, it was an extraordinary show. It was the Ishmael Ensemble. It was their album launch. It's a lovely big venue, great sound system. They are an extraordinary band, but the, ecstasy of it was the sound of 200 people listening at the same time that was profound mm. that was profound mm. that i mean they're a fine band i went to see them again last week they are just as good as they were that night but the listening presence coming off that audience was extraordinary mm. and I had heard nothing like it for two years mm. that mended something in me mm. and probably in everyone else present mm. so I want to do a part two of this podcast one day, Melissa, mm -hmm. would you be willing? Oh, yes. <laughs> because there are things here that warrant exploration in greater breadth and depth. This world that you walked us into with speaking about your just sounding what was going on for you. That's the fount of songwriting for me. For me, not for everyone, but for me. Mm. That relationship between that encounter in Fluidity in continuous sound and improvisation in the present moment. And the little bits of material that come out of that, that you remember. Mm. I think there's a whole language of ways to explore those possibilities whilst keeping them flexible, whilst keeping them free. Mm. You know, you've, you've rightly objected to going straight from that tender practice to the making of things, mm -hmm. you know. Mm. And I would love to explore for you the nature of that objection, because I think it's a wise one. For me, where that objection lives 
is that there is much more life to be had, much more to explore before the editing stage sets in. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a whole craft and skill of living with those little phrases, those little sea crystals of material that came out of this encounter in, in fluidity with an experience. Mm. Letting them do what they do and letting them lead you to other material. Mm. I'd love to explore that. And I think the best way to explore it would be, um, would be practically. Um, with the caveat that no one would come in your piano den, because I think that's really important that no one, <laughs> like, that, that has to stay, that has to stay sacred. Um, but I've been through, um, an interesting experience of I've, I've had to, yeah, I've had to not spend time with my, with my best friend because my, uh, my carpal tunnels have stopped me playing the guitar. Mm. Um, I was never as good a guitarist anywhere near as you are a pianist, but I have been, I think, as close to it um, as a friend. And uh, I've lost that relationship for a while. Mm. One of the gifts that's given is that I've been thrown back on my voice mm -hmm. and words mm. and just this pure, pretty exposing, but pretty infinitely flexible relationship between a melodic shape, a melodic gesture, between the sound of a word. I mean, actually mm. it's been really freeing because mm. um, the guitar particularly being, you know, a more folksy player, less, less flexible. Like you, you, you have a lot of musical language to throw at your piano playing because mm. you've, you've played so much different material. Mm. Um, my guitar playing stuck me a little bit in, in certain worlds and certain, um, certain ways of expressing. So having to put the guitar down and just sing and just be in that moment of question mark, I am singing, I don't know what I'm going to sing next, but I'm going mm. to keep singing. Mm. Um, or that melody has a vowel sound in it. So what vowel sound is that word? Is, what word is that vowel sound part of? Yeah. And what does that mean in my feelings? What images does that conjure up? Mm. And if those images spring further words, how do they change the melody, all that stuff. Mm. So I've been kind of chucked into that freshly. Mm. And I'm really excited about it. Mm. Um, and I'm lucky enough to have a songwriting partner in Matt, who is a, an improviser par excellence. He's like, yeah, he, is a real 
dolphin of fluidity. Mm-hmm. I, that, that was a really cringy phrase. I'm sorry to the dolphins and I'm sorry to Matt. Um <laughs> 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 But it is the time of night it is, and accidents are going to happen. So, I'd love to explore that stuff, if you're willing, in a part two. Yeah. Um, And I would love to speak with you more about room art, about community, about interdisciplinarity. Mm. That would be amazing. Uh, maybe we could bring Marcino in on that part yeah. as well mm. um, in some way. Yeah. So let's end on Half Light. You've gone way beyond the answers to the questions I was going to ask. (laughs) I don't need to bother asking them now because what you said was more interesting. But you've released now this long song put together from this intimate practice with the piano. I think that that whispering along with the piano is still audible, Mm. you know, that that's the tender place the vocals came from, Mm. but it's integrated with this huge soundscape um and I was listening to the bleakness of it mm-hmm. yesterday. The sense of loneliness in it. And I was thinking that it catches something of a moment in time, which is perhaps beyond the bubble of the piano room. Maybe the bubble spreads out to cover a city. Mm. Maybe its tendrils sort of reach out further than that. Mm. There's something about this being surrounded, cloaked in a kind of half-light. In some kind of existential battle of endurance. Mm. That seems to me to be a common experience. I recognised it. I hear that sound, if you want to call it that, coming from all kinds of silences. I hear it between the lines of 
all kinds of outputs of popular culture. Yeah. So where did Half Light spring from? Again, I think you're right. You seem to understand all of this more than I do. <laughs> and to be able to express it because, yeah, I know I say, oh, it's this small piano bubble. But uh, yeah, Half Light, um, it was, yeah, that bubble w was much more than me and the experiences of Laura in it or. Camille's in it. I wanted that soundscape to be bigger, much bigger beyond us. And yeah, on a very practical level, you involved a fair number of people in this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was much more about that solitude and intimacy with loneliness in a much bigger place mm. and I think a lot of it inspired by the experiences of being here in this city yeah we're sitting here in Smethwick in Birmingham <laughs> And the, the loneliness, but that dynamic energy of a city and the grit as something really about, like you said, was it the word endurance? It's about that you've just got to keep, keep your head down and get through it. Melissa Morris, thank you for all that you've said on this podcast. You have surprised me many times over. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you <laughs> for your words and for your music.
observing year after year no Gets him 
Always striving for perfection, full of frustration That my flaws leave me falling far from the perception Of who I'm supposed to be That's just you Your mistakes were your big breaks and your sad goodbyes are actually your happy hellos because they set you free when they let you go. Out of mind, out of 
growing tree of meaning forms this podcast. If you want to be a pen friend of the podcast, I'll write to you and share what I learned from tending it, the links that emerge between the conversations, 
the insights that blossom after them. I'll let you know about opportunities to write together as they come up, whether that be free workshops or long course deep dives. Go to movingwiththepen.com slash penfriend and enter your email to make it happen.